You're listening to a podcast from the University of Manchester. Welcome back to The Buzz. We thought for the next few episodes, we'll try something different. We're going to delve a little deeper into some of the research happening here in Manchester. We're going to explore topics like ALEDs, where the blood, sweat and tears of astronauts could help make Mars habitable, as well as digging deeper into the work of Manchester scientists at CERN. In this episode, I'm joined by Anna. Hi, Anna. Hi. And what do you do? Uh, In a nutshell, I talk about science. That's great. Uh, A little bit later on in the episode, we're going to talk to Alad about his rather weird research into bricks and blood. But before that, I thought to introduce yourself, Anna, to the the Buzz audience, you could do the the Manchester Quick Questions that we've done this season. So there's five of them. I hope you find it as fun as the listeners do. So uh, first question, what is your favourite thing to do in Manchester? I love to walk around the city with my camera and usually make a pit stop in one of the lovely coffee shops in the Northern Quarter. Chapter one is my favourite. Chapter one. Cool. And who is your favourite Manchester-related person? It's a bit of an obvious answer, but I think it's got to be Emmeline Pankhurst. Just because, well, she was a trailblazer for her time, but also as a woman, I've got so much to be grateful to her for. You know, a lot of the things that I take for granted these days were very hard one for women of her generation so yeah probably her yeah that's a really good answer um okay so moving on what is your favorite manchester building my favorite manchester building is the sackville street building okay although we've now moved out of it as our offices i've always loved that building i was a student here for my undergrad and my postgrad and I remember doing exams in that building and just thinking how beautiful it was and while it's nice to be in a modern building with air conditioning I do miss the the quaintness of that building sure yeah I think someone else said Sackville Street as well Uh, I like Sackville Street I was only on it in it for like six months so I feel like I haven't got the attachment other people have to it yeah Um, but I do know that um, the the toilets on the second floor this is a very obscure reference so i apologize for <laughs> listeners who have never been to the toilets in sackville street building but they have a plaque which says something along the lines of restored to their 19... 1957 yeah. state i was like why who asked for this <laughs> i don't want an old toilet i want a modern one yes. so i yeah for Complete that reason with alone, gaps in the glass panes so that you get a nice fresh breeze every time you're in there yeah so for that reason alone the sackville street building is not my favorite building in manchester <laughs> but that's okay uh what is your Favourite place to eat in Manchester? My favourite place is probably Pancho's Burritos. Um, They used to have one near the university, but I think that's changed hands now, which is a shame. But they've got this really great little outlet in the market in the Arndale. And it's um, probably the most authentic Mexican food I've had in Manchester. Um, Also been confirmed by a friend of mine who is Mexican. So top tip. Well, you know it's good then. Yeah. Great. And finally, if you could describe Manchester in three words, what would it be? Wet, vibrant and fun. That was very good. Like usually, a little bit behind the curtain here, but usually there's a big gap between on this question. People have to think about the words, but Anna said them within like two seconds. Yeah. So either she's been asked this before or she doesn't... She... I just know what Manchester feels exactly. like. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing that. And I hope the, the audience feel a bit more acquainted with you. Uh, and now we're going to talk to Alid all about his Space Bricks research. Uh, so, Alid, uh, we're talking about how we can be more efficient with our resources in space. Uh, what are some of the research you've looked into about how, doing, how, how we can do that? Uh, yeah, so... 
on one of my recent research projects, we were looking at ways to um, make biocomposites for construction on the moon and Mars. So basically that means using a, a biological polymer, biopolymer, to stick together moon dust and Mars dust to produce a construction material. And the reason we need to do this is if we're going to send humans to the moon and Mars, we need to protect them from radiation exposure. So it's fine if they're just going for like a couple of days, uh, but if they're going to be up, for, up there for sustained periods, um, radiation from the sun and the galaxy is going to be like a quite a serious problem. Um, so any habitat we have, we're going to have to have meters thick walls and ceilings. So we need a way to yeah stick together moon dust and Mars dust in an efficient, cost-effective, low-energy way. Uh, so we were looking at various uh, biological substances to, to stick them together. Now, um, yeah, there's a few options for this and a few people, and we initially started looking at making synthetic proteins, so things like synthetic spider silk, which um, with biotechnology we have the, the tools to create now um, to stick together the moon dust Mars is to make these this concrete-like material. Uh, but the issue there is... Um, if you're going to have to take a look up, up like a bioreactor to produce these synthetic proteins and it adds extra weight um, and the amount of mass you send up into, into space to, to the moon and Mars. And increases. I guess that was the inspiration behind using Mars and Earth, well Mars and moon dust was because taking it up from Earth to Mars would be really expensive, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, we need to apply this principle called in situ resource utilization so using living off the land essentially using as much resources as we can find on the moon and mars as possible and the one thing that they have in massive abundance is is regolith which is yeah the, the moon dust mars dust uh, soil essentially so yeah that's a resource we know we're going to have huge quantities of so we want to make the most of it and, and, and make construction materials out of that does the, the regolith uh, differ between Mars and the Moon in terms of how those work with the binders that you're using? Yeah, yeah, so there's um, quite a difference uh, chemically and physically. So because the Mars does have a rudimentary atmosphere, uh, you do get dust storms, you do get erosion, uh, whereas on the Moon uh, it doesn't have an atmosphere, so... Uh, the particles are a lot more jagged, um, which is actually good for making um, concrete. You, you don't really want rounded uh, particles, so, that, so the moon dust works better. Uh, and in terms of chemical composition, there is differences. Both are about 50% silicon dioxide, which is the same as sand. Uh, Mars just obviously has like a lot more um, iron oxide in, which is, gives it the, the red colour. Um, so there are subtle differences, but with our technology, because it's, 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 it's like a, a biopolymer doing the sticking, it doesn't make a huge difference. Um, yeah, because we don't really rely on like chemical bonds forming, it's more like physical bonds. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so there's not a huge difference, but there definitely are differences. And you, so you started with spider silk, you're trying to use that as the binder, and then you've now moved on to blood apparently, or, or that was the next step. So talk me through that process. Uh, yes, yeah, so this goes back a couple of years. So basically we were making synthetic spider silk initially with the idea to make fibres, spider silk fibres, because they should be very strong and tough. But we had a lot of difficulty with that. It was, we managed to make fibres, but it was difficult to get them strong. So then we moved to glues, essentially, adhesives. So 
uh, making synthetic spider silk, seeing if we can stick bits of, of glass and plastic. We were interested in transparent materials, so then we looked at things like glass uh, together. And then we found just through a control experiment, uh, which is kind of just like a, to establish kind of a baseline, we used a random protein uh, we bought just from the, a supplier called bovine serum albumin, which is a protein from cow blood. And we found that that was really good at sticking together the glass. Um, so yeah, it was, it was kind of surprising, but then we did a historical literature survey and found that historically people used to use like animal blood as glues, so there was, there was precedent there. And then we thought, well, if we can stick together two pieces of glass, it should be able to stick together particles of sand, because glass and sand are both made of silicon dioxide. And then we thought, well, um, if it can stick together sand, then it should be able to stick together Mundus and Mars dust, because they're both about 50% uh, sand or silicon dioxide. Um, so then we gave that a quick go, found that it worked, but then we thought, well, it's not diff it's not going to be easy to produce uh, bovine seal albumin synthetically, you know, you need these bioreactors on the Moon and Mars, but we're going to be sending humans there anyway, so, you know, by definition, any crewed mission to the Moon and Mars is going to have humans, so we thought, well, why don't we look at maybe using the human equivalent of this protein and uh, yeah, humans, we produce like between 12 and 25 grams of this human serum albumin a day. So we're making like a lot of it, uh, even by, you know, efficient bioreactor standards. We, we can essentially consider ourselves to be bioreactors, continuously making and breaking down this protein. If we just kind of tap some of that off, we could potentially have like a, a source of, of, of binder uh, without having to take the additional kind of bioreactors and supporting infrastructure. So that's found in human blood, is it? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. we'd have to take our astronauts' blood to make the binder. Is there any uh, evidence or research that tells you if that's safe to do in space? Because it's a very different environment from it is on Earth. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really good point, and it's probably uh, the biggest um, flaw this this method has. The astronauts' health is going to be like the number one priority, and travelling in in microgravity in particular is already like bad for your health. You get all sorts of of health effects like bone, mass, tissue, de degradation type of stuff. Um, so we don't know what the effect would be. Probably not good. Um, so, so we don't actually <laughs> Just what need... you want in space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, we don't need like all the components of blood. This protein is in the blood plasma. So we essentially can take the blood plasma out and put all your cells and all the kind of like... Um, valuable parts of your of your blood back in your body and just take out this plasma and, and then take the protein from there. So it's not as kind of strenuous in your body as uh, directly giving blood. And on Earth you can give plasma. I think the WHO recommends a limit of two donations of a week, um, like 1.2 litres per donation. So you can give it quite safely on Earth fairly frequently because you're not, you know, you're not taking the cells, the cells go back in your body. Um, but yeah, because space is just not suitable, really very, you know, suitable for, for human habitation, um, it's probably not going to be as safe because, you know, we're going to have health problems anyway. But we, we don't really know the effects of, of reduced gravity, hypogravity on, on humans. We don't know if living on the moon and Mars is, is going to be more like living in microgravity, which we know is really bad for human health, or if it will be more like living on Earth, where obviously it's fine. So yeah, there's still questions to answer there, but if there's uncertainty, it, NASA's not going to like gamble on it being okay. <laughs> <laughs> and how much would you need from a human to be able to produce a, a meaningful amount of building material? 
Uh, yeah, so we did some back of the envelope calculations. So um, how much is it? So for every um, litre of blood, there's 40 grams of this protein. So it's quite a lot. And again, like if you're using a, bi a bioreactor, you'd struggle to get like one gram a litre. Oh, wow. so, so 40 grams a litre. Very efficient. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're really efficient at pre producing this protein. Like it's, it's just one of those proteins your body's constantly, your liver's just always like making it and then and breaking it down and recycling it. Um, so that's 40 grams per litre per person per donation. Um, and yeah, you could give 1.2 litres twice a week and on a, the kind of architecture for current architecture for Mars missions to send six astronauts. So that's six times times all that by six per week. And a Mars mission will probably last um, about two years just because of uh, the orbits of, of the moon and of, of Earth and Mars have to align up. Uh, so in that time, um, basically you couldn't produce enough. You could produce enough to sustain one extra person if you used it as a mortar and had a different kind of technology to produce bricks mm -hmm. just because the main reason is because you just need so much material like you, your walls and ceilings have to be like a meter thick mm -hmm. uh, to protect you from the radiation so yeah by itself after doing the work and the calculations it's not feasible by itself it would have to be like a a, a complementary technology if it was ever to be applied in real life Mm -hmm. So is there an alternative then that's better than the human blood? Yes, so that's something we've since been working on. So yeah, after finding out the, the human blood worked, it was, it was kind of just kind of a, a spearhead application. And once we found it worked, we thought, well, hmm, if this works, what else can we use? Um, and the other thing we know we're going to have to be sending up uh, with humans, if we're going to be sending humans to the moon and Mars, is, is food or preferably the capability to produce food in situ so you know we'll be growing plants uh, to feed people um, and those plants will be taking in carbon dioxide turning to oxygen and um, so that's something that we'd really like to do rather than just kind of ship all the food and uh, ha have it a single use and uh, yes yeah, so we want to be producing food in situ so we thought is there anything that we can produce um, that is a food a food that we could also use as like a binder instead of human blood and essentially just cut out like the, the middleman literally so we don't need to feed feed astronauts and take their blood we could just use the food directly uh, so that's what we've been looking at now and we found that starch from potatoes rice um, wheat uh, it's like the most common carbohydrate in, in the human diet works really well as a binder and, and again this historical precedent so starch was historically used as like a glue it's still used in like wallpaper paste and stuff and mm. um, so yeah that's what we've moved to now and we've done some investigation and some optimization and we found that uh, yeah potato starch works particularly well um, and it makes a material that is much stronger than the blood-based material and we've got the strength up to 91 megapascals and just in, for comparison Ordinary concrete is usually 25 to 41 megapascals and high strength concrete is typically 42 to 19. So it's like the upper end of, of high strength concrete in terms of compressive strength. That's um, pretty impressive. Yeah, to me it would seem like, I know concrete's a really bad thing for the environment, right, on Earth. So loads of carbon dioxide emissions come from it. 
Uh, it would seem as if this seems to be a little... To get the same level of strength of concrete, it would seem as if we could use more, I guess, friendlier material for the earth. Is, is that true? Is replications of this for, for earth as well? Yeah, absolutely, and that's exactly what we're looking at now. So again, this historical precedent, they found um, starch, like sticky rice in the mortar in the Great Wall of China. And I think there's, um, it's been identified in like Roman concrete as well. Uh, I don't think we, we, we fully know the, the recipe of Roman concrete, but I think that's been identified as, as one of the ingredients, so starch. Um, so that's what we're looking at now, yeah, translating this work from the space um, kind of spearheading uh, technology application to the earth um, and that's one of the the things that's, that space exploration is really good for if you look back at like the the Gemini and the Apollo missions there was lots of technologies that were developed specifically just to get humans to the moon but it turns out they had like you know really useful applications on earth so for example uh, solar panels were like really kind of pushed forward by this uh, the Apollo program because they needed a way to to power the um, the lunar lander when it was when it was on the moon and hydrogen fuel cells were again like really pushed forward by those programs just because NASA thought you know well we're going to be taking hydrogen oxygen up anyway to, to put as rocket fuel and it'd be great if we could make electricity out of it and the byproduct was water then the astronauts can then drink so they really pushed that technology forward uh, and I think this current kind of um, space exploration that's going on now and the, the push to Mars I think there will also be lots of offshoot technologies and this kind of bioconcrete stuff that, that I've been working on is, is one of those things that the space could, the space kind of idea could, could help spearhead and push the technology forward. But then the ultimate goal is obviously translate that to earth. And like you said, concrete is really bad for the environment, huge, huge amounts of um, carbon dioxide produced. So if we can produce a, a bio-based alternative, it could be really good for, for, for sustainability going forward. How far away are we from being able to use this on Earth? Uh, I, I remember you mentioning that there are a few barriers between now and then, so what are those? Uh, yeah, so we've only really just scratched the surface with these, these, this bioconcrete, these biocomposite type materials for Earth, um, and there's still like challenges to overcome. Uh, the strength is looking really good, but one of the big challenges for translating yeah, the technology from, from, from space to Earth is moisture sensitivity. So basically the materials um, are sensitive to moisture. If they, if they get wet, then they'll soften and that's no good for, for a, a concrete. Especially in Manchester. Manchester. <laughs> Especially in Manchester, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's not an issue on the Moon and Mars because there's practically no moisture. It's never going to like rain on your house on, on the Moon. There's no good. atmosphere. Yeah, permanent sunny holiday. Yeah. Um, but yeah, obviously on Earth, that's a different story. Uh, so that's one of the things we're looking at now, um, developing the formulation, seeing if there's a way we can make it waterproof. I'm confident there will be a way. Um, again, we're kind of looking at hi history because, you know, all these problems have been solved in the past and uh, there's all sorts of bio-based uh, varnishes that they used to use. Before we started using oil for everything, we had to rely on on bio-based substances, so there's lots of you know tree saps or drying oils like linseed oil, which um, can provide waterproof coating. So that's one of the things we're looking at. Um, but yeah, so I think that should be overcome, but it's going to take probably yeah at least a couple of years of, of of focused development, and maybe we could overcome it, but we might struggle to overcome it. It might take much longer.
Um, so I know you've been looking at other kind of waste human products and how they may be used uh, for your biocomposite materials. I know you touched upon uh, urea, which is found in urine. Um, what, what, did, what did you find with urea? Uh, yeah, so yeah, we're interested in using any any, any waste product that, that humans produce, um, mainly for yeah space uh, construction, just because we know we're going to have these things in abundance. And with urea, which um, is like the main um, component in in urine after water, uh, we found that it made the materials up to three times stronger. And the reason we investigated urea in the first instance is um, so we were, we were investigating the mechanism behind like why. Why does this uh, protein from, from blood, uh, why is it sticky, basically? Why is it sticking things together? And we did a, a type of characterization which showed that the proteins were, were unfolding and basically becoming unstable as the glue is drying and then going into a, a different conformation where they, they all kind of linked in, and bonded together. Um, and this substance, urea, is used commonly in biochemistry to deliberately destabilize and unfold proteins so we thought okay we've got like a hypothesis as to the mechanism now we want to test it uh, to see if we're on the right track or maybe maybe we're wrong but one way we could test it was to add urea just chemical grade stuff uh, not not from pee this this stuff uh, add the urea and then see if that would affect the 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 bonding strength so we thought it was going to make it weaker um, just because it's going to affect with the protein folding, make the materials weaker, but that would support our kind of hypothesis that this is how the, the protein is, is sticking things together. Um, so that's what we did, but to our surprise, it made the materials up to three times stronger. Um, and we think the reason for this is, yes, yeah, so all the, the bonding is based on uh, these things called hydrogen bonds, hydrogen bonding. And urea is a very strongly hydrogen bonding small molecule and that's how it kind of disturbs the, the structure of the proteins. Proteins hold themselves together with hydrogen bonding. This disturbs hydrogen bonds and generally kind of breaks proteins but in this instance when, when we dry the materials and form the, the, the composite this urea kind of gets locked in the structure and, and just uh, contributes and assists with the hydrogen bonding. So that's how we came about it but then yeah we thought well we have urea on a space mission because it's going to be the main thing we we uh, excrete through through our Wii. Um, so that was a really nice addition to the story, like it can make materials up to three times stronger if we use this common substance from, from, from urine. And you don't have to be tapping your astronauts up for blood every day, which is a probably a lot safer and a lot more pleasant for the astronauts. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. It's a lot less invasive to take someone's urine than them than their blood. Yeah. So with all of this in mind, obviously you'll need people, your astronauts, to be trained in how to actually use all of this uh, when they're in space, like how to process the urea in the urine and then get the regolith and then mix it all together. How feasible is it to train somebody up to make these things? Uh, so I think it will largely be automated. So um, back in like the Apollo days, things were quite different you know computers were really in their infancy and you know the astronauts had to do things themselves you had to send up like you know a pilot to actually maneuver the vehicle and and uh, you know navigators and if, if there was a if they lost power they had to like rely on navigation by looking at stars and, and stuff like that but these days and with these this modern kind of um re interesting going back to the moon and mars we're much better at automation uh computers a lot more advanced and robotics are a lot more advanced 
So uh, we'll probably rely on um, yeah, automated systems to do things like this because the actual processing steps themselves are quite simple and straightforward. It's just like mix things together, uh, dry them, and yeah. your typical recipe. Yeah, basically like a bit like making a cake. Yeah. Uh, so we want to automate. Except one made from we. Exactly. Yeah, made from <laughs> blood and we. Um, so we want to automate as many things as possible and just kind of like the, leave the humans there to do like the science and, and the higher level things that we, we need humans to do. Yeah. The trouble is, though, I've just got this image of the Martian in my head where everything goes horribly, horribly wrong and you're left there on your own trying to grow potatoes. <laughs> Happily, that that will help you make bricks. But all your automations failed at that point. Um, uh, yeah, that's very true. And. I think one of the main kind of criteria they're going to look at when they when they select astronauts to go to, to Mars in particular is uh, problem solving, creativity, um, yeah, solve, solving challenges. Because one of the big differences between going to the Mars as opposed to going to the Moon is the there's a huge time delay uh, when the Moon or so when the Earth is on the other side of the Sun than, than Mars, the time delay in total is 44 minutes if you're communicating with Earth. So if there is a, a life-threatening emergency, the astronauts are gonna to have to solve the problems themselves. And mm -hmm. the Apollo 13 disaster, um, there could be something like that happening where, yeah, there's a, there's a major disaster, but all the resources of NASA were able to come up with a solution and just tell the astronauts exactly what to do, how to like solve the, the problem. We're not gonna be able to do that um, with astronauts on, on Mars, or it's going to be a lot more difficult just because there's going to be a huge time delay. So astronauts will need to think on their feet. And uh, in fact, that's probably one of the main ways that the, the blood concrete stuff could get a, applied. Uh, so I don't think it will actually be used you know, to build whole, whole buildings. It's not feasible. But if there's an emergency situation where they need to just kind of like whip up some <laughs> Here's concrete. one I made earlier. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah just knowing that you can make, you know, like a concrete-like material from blood and urine um, could be useful in like a, an emergency life or death situation if there's a hole breach, you know, like a, a hole in like the, the habitat and they just need to like plug it and, I don't know, if they've, they've run out of glue, then they can just like whip some up from sure. giving blood. So we need to be mean? sending this pitch to Spielberg for his next space movie. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think, so. I, I think you, you sound like the ideal astronaut, Alex. I think you're pitching for a ride to Mars. Yes. Would you go? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm just like stealth, kind of like trying to, yeah, um, ad advertise myself as like a, as an astronaut candidate. Sure. Um, I'd have to think very hard about actually going. I, I would probably say yes. I'm yeah, sure I would say yes. Like. You couldn't say no to something like that. I absolutely would say no to that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, no way you sending me to space. <laughs> uh, Mars would be a lot more challenging than the moon, though, just because, yeah, yeah there's no chance of coming back um, if you're outside of the, the uh, orbital window. If, if you're on, moon, on the moon on, like, a, a surface habitat and there's a disaster three days and you, you're back home, uh, if you're on Mars and there's a disaster, it's like, oh, well, you're, you're by yourself for the next, like, one and a half years. So <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah, that doesn't sound fun. No. So I've seen you make some of these bricks with kids and things. So it obviously has quite a simple structure. How do you do it in such a kind of, like, DIY way? Yeah, so the, 
the principle is really straightforward really basically we're just making like a glue out of yeah starch or the, the blood protein is similar to egg white so we make like a, a biological uh, bio-based glue and then we mix it with um, the regolith which is essentially a very fine sand and we compress it into you know, a brick shape squeeze out any kind of like uh, air gaps and stuff and then we dry it and then the, the glue kind of sets as, as it dries so yeah in, in principle it's very simple it's very straightforward and yet yeah, kids can do it and we do that with um, with outreach quite a bit um, but yeah the other the other reason it's, it's fairly straightforward is um, I did loads of this work just at home um, so yeah because it was a large part of the work was done over Covid times and we were locked outside the lab and um, yeah a lot of the work I was doing with like my startup anyway so it was, it was outside of the university and just in my cellar in my kitchen there were constraints obviously of what I could use so a lot of it was just like based around what I can microwave yeah uh, no taking lab equipment home with you yeah yeah like kitchen cupboard ingredients like oh got a load of cornstarch let's try that <laughs> sure. vinegar yeah I'll just try that um so the fact that I didn't have access to really fancy equipment or really expensive chemicals kind of put those constraints on to keep it very simple but that's kind of what you want and um, that helped develop like the material and, and kept it realistic and, and straightforward yeah so some of the best inventions come out of something so simple it's just very easy and straightforward and you got a great building material from it yeah yeah i think um that's something that's kind of lost a bit in in modern materials chemistry materials science um materials chemistry in particular is uh, a lot of the academics they kind of go towards complexity they're like oh that's really interesting and complicated let me kind of investigate and pursue further and they end up with all these materials which are yeah very interesting but they're just not very feasible for practical applications you know, there's all these kind of for example super porous materials um which have yeah these really interesting properties but they'd be way too expensive to to make um and, and employ practically on earth and it's difficult to kind of see a path of how those materials could become cheaper because yeah they're fundamentally used really expensive uh, building blocks um so i think keeping focus on simplicity and realism helps you invent practical useful materials brilliant and um, so how in a, a best case scenario how soon could we see this employed on earth or in space uh, yeah, so um, I've got a startup now and we're trying to apply um, the technology on Earth and at the moment we're developing alternatives to, to decorative ceramic tiles just because um, concrete has very strict kind of like regulations that you have to meet, you know, you have, the, you have to show your building isn't going to collapse after like 60 years or if it, if it gets a bit wet. Um, but wall tiles, the regulations are a lot um, less stringent so that's our kind of like spe uh, spearhead application and um, so we already have prototypes we're still optimizing and developing them um, they uh, we're trying to get them to meet like certain regulation regulatory standards and if we can get to them then it will be fantastic and they'll get a stamp of approval that they yeah, they meet these regulations and we can we can start like shipping them out uh, but if we can't get there, then we can still kind of sell them uh, for bespoke applications. So, yeah, within like a year or so, we're hoping to have 
the tiles were developing um, out there in the real world. Um, but then, yeah, that would still be quite a limited capacity. And then over the next few years, we plan to further optimise and, and develop and, and scale up as well. Mm -hmm. So these tiles would be waterproof? You could use them in your bathroom? Uh, yeah, so that's something we're working on now. So at the moment, they're water resistant, so they can survive splashes and they're, they're fine, but they just can't be soaked in water for prolonged periods. But we are investigating, as I mentioned before, various coatings and additives to, to make them more water resistant. And we're, we're confident we will be able to solve this problem just because if you look, you know, historically, there are bio-based um, varnishes and coatings that we're used to, you know, protect wood and, and other things from moisture. So, yeah, our focus is to find like a, a bio-based solution to, yeah, overcome the, the moisture sensitivity issue. If we can't find a bio-based solution, then there's absolutely, we could definitely overcome that issue just using, you know, like a, a chemical-based varnish. So yeah, one way or the other, we will be able to overcome that issue and, and use the the tiles uh, in kitchens and bathrooms and where there is a lot of moisture. But um, we're really working hard to try and develop, you know, find like a, a bio-based sustainable solution mm -hmm. rather than to resort to, yeah, chemical-based um, or petroleum-based um, varnishes. Fab. Any great news that you want to share or up-and-coming cool <laughs> stuff, watch this space kind of stuff? Uh, yeah, so the, a publication of the, the starch-based concrete for building on the Moon and Mars, that's coming out soon. Um, we also recently got our first grant, uh, the Ellie and Britt Harari Award uh, from the University of Manchester to... Um, basically, it's the first big grant we've had to get our startup off the ground. So that's £50,000, which, um, yeah, it's the first kind of major bit of money, so I no longer have to... Uh, rely on my cellar and <laughs> yeah my kitchen and I've got like a, a massive 50 ton hydraulic press currently in the living room which um, <laughs> sure. my wife isn't too happy about so we'll be able to move into some real labs and get some proper characterization done as well so um, yeah we're excited about that getting set up in like a, a proper lab to go forward. Awesome stuff. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Buzz, and thank you, Aled, for sharing your wonderful space brick research. You can read more about his research by searching Hub Manchester Science and Engineering blog on Google. You can also find us on social media at UOMSciEng on Twitter or on Instagram at UOMSciEng. You can also email fscmarketing at manchester.ec.uk. Next time, we're looking at the role Manchester is playing at CERN. See you there!